0: Hello, this is Kave Rafi, a host of the uh, New Books in Art. Today, I'm with Monica Rauch. She is an Associate Professor in Communication, Journalism, and Media Department at Suffolk University in Boston, and the editor of the book Abbas Kiarasami Interviews, published by the University of Mississippi in 2023. Hello, Monica, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Kavi. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, Um. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um. Uh, let's get started by asking you about, you know, your background and how this book came to be. Uh,
1: well, I, I do teach film theory as well as video production, and I edited a volume for the University of Mississippi Press a few years ago on filmmaker Marguerite von Trotter. And so it was completely coincidental that I reached out to the press uh, A couple of years, I don't remember exactly when, after Kirosami's passing, because I was wondering why there was no volume on him. And literally at that moment, they were looking for an editor for that volume. So it, it was just really coincidental. So I would like to thank very much the general editor, Jerry Perry, for giving me this opportunity to also edit this volume.
0: Thank you. Um, maybe uh, for our listeners, yeah, could you give a quick overview of Kiyo career in life um, to just orient ourselves?
1: Yeah, so the book also includes a detailed chronology, but he was born in 1940 in Tehran and he passed away in 2016 in Paris, uh, cancer. And he started off at the University of Tehran's College of Fine Arts in Painting and Graphic Design. And eventually started working at a center that is referred to as Canoon, uh, producing media for children. And there he transitioned into filmmaking. And then eventually he left Canoon and became a filmmaker in his own right. And that's really when the world got to know him in the 1980s with uh, Where's the Friends House and Close Up. And then but we followed basically his career all the way until his untimely passing in 2016.
0: We discussed by the beginning of his career, specifically in 1980s and 1990s, after the revolution, specifically those two films, Where is a Friend's Home, right, in 1987 and Close Up, 1990s, uh, which in, in, in a sense catapulted Kiara Semi to this international fame. Uh, and what, what do you think about that? Uh, what are the themes, and uh, what what do you think about these early films? Ah, curious. Yeah. Uh
1: Yeah, I love the question, Cabe, but you're asking me to narrow down meaning. Um, it, when you're asking me about themes in those films, and um. Kirsami was not very fond of that so I have also tried to avoid this as much as possible when I wrote the introduction for the book so let me answer this in a roundabout way by talking about the approach I took when I um, made the book uh, as an editor of this type of book where it is about a particular filmmaker's voice I try to have that voice shine through so when I wrote the von Trotter volume, the introduction, and edited it. And I got to interview her. I mean, she's very direct at German trade. And so my introduction there has a very different voice that was trying to respect her voice as a filmmaker. And so my approach to this book with Kira Stami was um, to try to refrain as much as possible from um. In you know categorizing his work providing lists giving ideas of this is what he's known for kind of thing because he champions what he refers to as the unfinished cinema where the audience is asked to be an active participant in the creation of meaning of his works and so having said all that um Returning to your question about the two films that you mentioned, yes, Where's the Friends House and Close-Up attracted a lot of attention internationally and arguably because they were so different and they were viewed as great. And so for right now, I want to leave the answer like that because I have a feeling in the questions that are coming up, we are going to get an idea of how Kurosami films are different and why it is so difficult to even summarize what is a plot of a Kirostami film um because there's so much ambiguity, and Kirostami wants you to feel that ambiguity in a way that it makes sense to you as opposed to saying, "Hey, all Kirostami films do x, y, and z
0: okay maybe i can I can do a follow up with this question uh, in this way um uh, in the yeah, more sure. broader sense. So going through the interviews, uh, I found it remarkable that Kiarostami appears to be more focused on the common human reality. And he emphasized that, right, in many of in interviews that he's interested in this universal, so to speak, rather than the particularly culturally distinct, right, Iranian uh, situation. How, how does this, you know, like, his film speak to his human society and, like, human condition in general, do you think?
1: I think the scenarios that he provides are ones that people can relate to, can recognize, regardless of where they are in the world. And especially since there's, depending on the film, of course, it's very dialogue heavy. they invite the audience really to situate themselves in relation to the characters on the screen. Like, how similar are they to me? Are they different? If so, how and why? And then he just permits us to ponder these interactions with these people, our observations of others. And if we choose, so feel how, like, we could even hold a mirror up to ourselves if we wanted to, Um what would our response be in a given situation what our relationship is like with our parents when we were children what is it like now as adults so i feel like his films may appear really simple as first glance but they have such a richness that the viewer can engage with because the human relationships desire to communicate we all share that
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's great um and so one one thing is specifically, like is striking about Kiyoharu and he's very much known for that, uh, is working uh, casting actors without in any background in film, uh, mostly like people from rural areas or children, specifically, specifically that probably that's coming from his background in, in Kanun. Uh, so rather than like like a, these professional actors, what do you think this guy gives and take of this approach? And how do you think that his approach is like a specific influence some of these films, right? The, the, this is not the like perhaps the commonality of all his major works, but uh some of them and how how significant it is?
1: Um I am unsure I got I'm one hundred percent certain of the question, so please correct me if I'm going down the wrong way. Some of his films, especially his early works, lots of unprofessional cast. And then we have also films with a professional cast. And I think it just provided him with different opportunities. And I think you are right in saying because he came out of Canoon and worked with children, So, there was that's how he started with an unprofessional cast on top of unprofessional, also illiterate cast, which required him um, to work much differently as a director because you could not give a cast member a script and say, memorize it. Uh, So, there are parts in the book that speak to that and that way of how he approached his directing role more like a coaching. Professional cast by having informal conversations with them an the evening before a scene is to be shot and he views it as implanting ideas in their minds because if they were to memorize something and then recount it it would likely sound really canned so instead he needs um, he needs a delivery that's spontaneous but that means he needs to give them the idea to sometime prior and then just say remember what we talked about why don't you repeat that in front of the camera now um but this way it's not rehearsed so it still comes across as believable so i think when he worked with an unprofessional cast and also then the component of illiteracy it just required him to be a very different director but then when we think of a film like later on like shireen right shireen itself is an illusion of an audience watching a film they never saw um, because of the way he actually shot it. There you really needed professional cast trained actors because their facial expressions were so essential to create the illusion that these people recorded at different times uh, were supposedly watching the same movie. And we were completely dependent to interpret their facial expressions um, as a viewer to understand that fake world that they are supposedly watching. Uh, And so I feel like he had to change his directing style entirely and it permitted him to explore different ways of creating film and what film could be that it could just be watching a fake audience watching a movie and audiences being completely engaged in that.
0: So this is like very much tied to this idea. Also the experimental, right? Like to, to, to some extent it is uh, for a director. I can imagine it can, be to the point of very much frustrating experience, right? I don't know how that worked for Kia Otome, but uh, but he wanted this right unexpectedness to some extent, uh, to my understanding, right? This, as you say, improvisation. Um, that's and 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 I think in in also interviews he mentioned the script writing and the role of the, some of these actors to to come up with their own. Um, you know conversations and the way of like. Huh.
1: Um, you mentioned that um, that his script writing and in the book it also covers some the, some of the interviews provide that type of conversation um, where he makes it very clear that he does not write scripts in a traditional format that he has ideas that he jots down but then when he gets to the set he also listens and sees what's there and what actually is the story so in a way he he makes decisions on the spot. Some things pop up that he hadn't planned that then become an integral part of the film. And in the same way, then the audience gets these unconventional narratives that leave holes um, that they have to make decisions um, about. And that is part of the way that his films are different. And it also means it is very difficult to define them in terms of genre. And that is where his 1990 close-up attracted so much attention because, or it's one of the reasons the genre concept is so popular, right? To classify a film, to help the audience decide, oh, I like comedy and laughter, so I'm going to choose this film. Whereas his many of his films blur these boundaries because he shoots on location in real towns with unprofessional actors who happen to live there and asked him to tell something a little bit about their real life. Like I'm thinking right now of, and life goes on, uh, which is also known as the second part of the Coker trilogy, which where's the friend's house being the first part um, because he shot this after a real earthquake had hit the region and he genuinely wanted to know whether, you know, how his cast was. And then he framed it in the film with the question, whether the two main uh boys who played the main characters in Where's the Friends House had survived and he drove to that region and along the way shot interviews sort of with people and so asked him to tell what actually happened to them or put a spin on it a little bit so that they said a little bit of what was truth, but then also something that he said to them that also needed to be part of it and so he blurred these boundaries um, in different ways across different films. And that makes it very hard to talk about like what's fiction, what's nonfiction here. And then the question though becomes, does it really matter? What is the point of a film? Like what's the message? And, or are we being just actually being distracted by trying to label, to classify and missing what the actual human, experience is and what else we could actually take from the film.
0: Yeah, you you already uh address one of my questions, specifically the question about reality and fiction. It seems this very much is comes up in in, in uh, you mentioned in in, in t- uh, trilogy and also in the interviews. Uh he mentioned about like his position and 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 and, and, and also this related to the casting, right? There is casting of real people but but the position but but the changing the roles right and and the complex you know reality right in in a life it's it's very complicating this uh the whole narrative which which see which which is very really interesting um uh, in this whole way okay uh let let me uh then ask you specifically about uh Kurosami as photographer as well uh, because it's also mentioned in the book uh, just changing it a bit topic, maybe we can come back to, to the uh, idea about the fiction and the reality but I think it's also the photographer, maybe the role of photographer maybe also played similar roles so uh, he, we know that Kurosami uh, trained as a photographer painter and graphist uh, he was a poet as well uh he did lots of photography, uh which 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 less acknowledged actually, uh, in, in than his films, uh perhaps. Uh, what do you think his approaches to these art forms, specifically photography, in relation to film and maybe that is it like through the lens of photography also we can understand his approach to fiction, reality, in this film or, you know um,
1: Yeah, no, really good question so the introduction in the book as well as some of the interviews provides some insight into Kirostami's approach to photography um, there is a documentary, A Walk with Kirostami, uh, that provides viewers literally a glimpse at Kirasami's approach on how he takes pictures because the interviewer walks with him while he's taking pictures along a path and um, he said that for him the camera is exactly the same as a pen and I'm quoting him now, it can be used by the common person or it can be used by Baudelaire to create a great poem. And he said that photography is much more of a pure art because as opposed to film, which always has this sort of narrative expectation um, connected to it. And, yeah, the, the book provides examples of how he looks through a lens and how he talks about framing a shot and what he actually sees. Um, there is an example of when you just see a lone tree in an image, it's a tree. But when you see lots of trees, it's actually a completely different concept. And so he breaks it down, like, how do we actually understand visuals and how does he understand photographs and framing a photograph versus when you're having a film where you're telling something much larger than just one still image. I think we can also see this in in his trajectory. When he made his early films, for, with children for children there were clear narratives with messages that also then engaged right we can imagine how children are engaged in these stories like finding your way to a soccer match those kind of uh films and then when we look at the at um films later on in his career there are some that resist narrative form like the short rug which is literally an extreme, an extreme close-up long take of a rug And what do you do with that? And um, the book does discuss that it actually has two titles. And the question is how a different title changes your viewing position to the film and how you approach it. Uh, This short is part of a larger film that was co-directed by many people. But if so, if you are seeing an object and the film title or that segment title is literally the object's name, Rug, it's much more open-ended how I'm going to respond to it, arguably, than if it if it, then if it gets kind of like a leading question, like where does it start or something like that, then it's like, oh, then we're gonna look at this image that's presented in front of us to find a starting point, kind of limiting us and creating sort of a narration um, there. So I do think early on, he was much more narrative focused and later on, it became, there are films that are, and other works that are much more abstract. But even with the narrative, he played around with it, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And the book covers kind of both these things, um, such as the ending of Taste of Cherry, right? where um, he shot an ending that he had in mind, but the film was ruined in the development lab. So we don't actually know what his original plan for the ending was. So then he had two choices ended with the moment where Mr. Ma is lying in the grave and it gets dark anyway and fade to black and run credits. And the audience would be left with the question. Well, so did he pass away? Right. Because it would be open-ended. Um, he had behind the scenes footage of that day on the set anyway and he explained that there was no way of reshooting because by the time the film was developed and basically the it became unusable because this was all shot outdoors in in the spring now the area looked entirely different because nature didn't stop for him (laughs) right the blossom like the the trees come continue to blossom. And so that was, reshooting wasn't an option. So then he could use the behind the scenes footage and the behind the scenes footage shows the actor who played Mr. Padi walking around and it shows other cast just being, you know, behind the scenes in between takes. And so he actually opted to do that. And that created such confusion again with the audience wondering, so what is this? Does Mr. Padi survive? Because we saw the person as Mr. Badi still, even though it was behind the scenes. And in a way, we are used to having a, a neatly tied narrative from Hollywood where everything is like, no questions asked, we know what the ending is and we can move on. And then we're also used to seeing behind the scenes bonus features. Um, but connecting both of them, that was something like, hold on. In a way, it's the same question, did Mr. Badi survive, but in a completely different context now, because the illusion of the film world was just broken,
0: yeah, I think that's a great example uh Mark. i t- thank you for this example specifically, I was thinking about this this part i mean this this shot. It's amazing, I think. As as you mentioned also previously, it's about more framing. To, to me, it's also my understanding it's more about framing than the narrative. Perhaps that's a key difference with uh, Hollywood in this sense. And specifically the last um, scene of The Taste of Cherry, uh, the marching of the soldiers, I still, and they arresting later. He called, you know, through the... Uh, the, you know the wireless and you know ordered stuff and they rest it's it's just it's such an amazing shot uh, yeah, yeah. it's also bringing me to idea of sound because that shot also had the the the, the uh, ended with this music by uh Louis Armstrong, uh it's, it's it's a very interesting choice. And then uh, I was thinking of also about the sound in general, not just the music, but the sound in general and the relationship between the sound and image. It seems for Kiorosam it also sounds play a major part. Um
1: yeah, i I likely don't have as much to say as you'd like me to. Um I'm gonna say many filmmakers I think have shown us that sound is a really important element in film. Like when I think of early filmmakers like Fritz Lang and in his movie, *M*, how silence is so important. And then the whistling is a key for the entire narrative. And I think, Kurosami has said that for him sound in itself and especially music right is perfect in its own right a perfect art in itself and so he does not want to use music because it can be too strong of a guide for a viewer and to be distracting or limiting the meaning so when it, that also means though that when he does use it it really indicates that he wanted to use it and he wants to send a particular message to the audience, whether it is the ending of Taste of Cherry or the repeating melody in Where's the Friend's House whenever Ahmad starts running again, Uh, right? So then, so music really stands out, Uh, but in generally sound, so many choices can be made how does the sound relate to the visual? Is it literally, is it the sound of what you see? Is it sound that's also happening in the scene, but actually the, the visual shows you something else? So that leaves the audience again in this unfinished moment. What am I supposed to do with this juxtaposition? And I am asked to decide as an audience member, what I am making of this is the, let's say we have a conversation in a car but instead of seeing the people conversing we are seeing the road instead Mm -hmm. so I get to make like how do I position myself to this is the road more important and can I just draw? is it like a conversation that I can just forget about and drown out and rather focus on the visual or is it is the dialogue really important? But I shouldn't attach it to the characters who are saying it because then I would lose the general meaning of how this conversation could also apply to my life. And is that maybe the reason why I'm not seeing the two people or three people who are having the conversation in the car? Uh, because I'm not meant to attach it to them. Or it, like, is that my interpretation? I decide. Aha, that's why. Right. So all these choices I get to make as an audience member because of the sound choices he made for me and how he positioned them so it's really exciting and it also is one of those reasons why summarizing a Kurosawa film and what actually happened is rather a challenge and hopefully every person has a slightly different summary
0: yeah um, yeah that's great uh exactly that's this is like Sometimes you see that as, as you mentioned, like this uh the gap, perhaps I would call it, like between the visual and the sound. And and it's it actually is invite the audience, right, to, to feel, um, to try to be to be more active. Uh and you know that's that's yeah, that's something very much interesting. Um uh, and the, the examples you give, I, I think is exactly uh point that out. Um, so we we discussed some of the early films also you mentioned some of the later examples like Shirin, but um uh, to just uh maybe stay more focused on the later works uh what do you think Like are the major shifts from these earlier films to to the later uh film specifically those that sh- shot you know outside of Iran and uh I do I know this, the the team's question.
1: I know <laughs> what a back. question. <laughs> you want me to summarize again, and create a chat like, here's a list of key differences. Um so I don't really want to answer this one, but um in the book I use a quote by Kirostami about um he's talking about a tree bearing fruit. And he says that when a tree gets uprooted and planted elsewhere. It will no longer bear fruit that is as delicious, I'm paraphrasing here, um, as the original that Kiyosami suggests that one can only do one's greatest work in the original soil at home. I wrote... Um, as kind of a rebuttal in the introduction that I, while well, I agree that his films shot outside of Iran, his later works when he could no longer work inside the country. They are different, but they are nonetheless very good films. I, I would say anyone is invited to view these films and decide for themselves. How are they similar? How are they different? Do they fi- still have a Kiarostami signature like a fingerprint on them?
0: Great. Uh, uh, the condition of filmmaking Inside the Iran and the outside, it's very different. It, it seems that one of, one of the uh, things is very much for uh, films outside of Iran, he, he worked with more professional castings. Uh, perhaps mm-hmm. that's also one of the limitations, uh, right, being outside the country. Um, there are certain limitations working in Iran uh, and also working outside. How these limitations actually transform or impact uh, his his approach to the cinema? Perhaps this is again too general a question. I I know this is not really we can do the summary, but can we think through like the how this condition the change in this condition of filmmaking uh, impacted uh, his approach?
1: I actually like that your question so general because it it invites a general answer. <laughs> um i think um kirstami's answers to censorship and how much it impacts him changed over the course of his career and the book also provides a trajectory of that because it provides interviews from early on in his career to then later on when he couldn't work right in iran anymore when uh The other, like when films were forced to be shot elsewhere. And I think at first, Ray, he said things along the line that censorship, I'm quoting, isn't something that bothers us terribly, like Iranian filmmakers, because we have found our ways to counter it. And so at first, he spoke about it like that that it's a way of an opportunity to figure out how do I make a film in the conditions I'm in, and that having certain guidelines because he also didn't like to work restrictions that certain guidelines that just had to be adhered to also in a way were helpful to come up with an idea because you had the you kind of had your playing field oh this is what i can do and here's where i can't go um and i mean he made the choice to make films that were able to be made in Iran. Eventually, his films were no longer screened in Iran. But unlike other filmmakers, he was not arrested for the films that he did make and that were screened elsewhere. Um, A filmmaker that is raised a few times in the book is Jafar Panay, because Kirstami was regularly asked about him in interviews. And so he had to position himself in comparison to uh, Panahi in those moments. And so we don't know why Kirasami made the decisions he made. And his approach was just one of many to say, Like, these are the conditions in my country. So how how am I positioning myself to it? How am I performing my craft? And so he made films that at first were shown in Iran. Then they were no longer shown in Iran. They were censored. But they did not get him in trouble in terms of imprisonment. But eventually the situation got so bad that he could no longer make films in his own country. And that forced him to move the tree into different soil and you pointed out that meant working with professional crews and having again a completely different approach to directing and filmmaking and i think he presents like one artist and his approach to the situation and every artist has to decide how they respond in that kind of situation and all the Iranian filmmakers would be comparisons to him in that regard but we can also look elsewhere in the world and say where you have restrictions set by the government you know how are the filmmakers or any artists producing art in those conditions and dealing with potential repercussions. And so Kirastami is just one example. And he, again, we see in the book how his voice, his answers change over time when these kind of questions are raised because he finds himself in different moments in his career and his work is impacted differently.
0: Yeah, that's that was a great uh, response. Uh, it's very, it's, complex situation and and uh, as as you mentioned i think artists in the in these situation perhaps often comes with these improvisations right like this is like like to some extent his film like this is our improvisation as you see in the different situations there are artists try to uh, get circumvent uh, these limitation in their own way with this kind of creative and, it's, and and think it's very much reflected in his film and he's very much when he's talking about limitation, specifically the early uh, era that's still not too much you know oppression uh, and he still uh, could work. He thinks that, yeah, that might be some incentive to, right? Thinking more creative about, like, how you can come up with ideas. Uh, perhaps this is a very personal question about which film of Kiara Sami do you think you, you like the most? Or you think very much interests you about, like, his approach, perhaps? Uh you find very much striking about the scenes or... Uh, you know, uh, in, in general, uh, I know this is very, like, uh, like feel free if you're, if, I don't want to put you on spot. <laughs> yeah, feel free I, on I find spot.
1: being put on the spot, I think I'm going to be vague. Uh, for you, um, I have different attachments or responses to different films. They mean different things to me. Part of them depended on when I saw them for the first time and some of those moments I also share in the book um, others political situations so I find here is what I really admire about Kirsami's work that he always pushed the art form and that he um, developed different techniques and tried out different things that um, like with his movie 10 that was shot on video when people at that time were still really holding on to film um and then him saying well I could never make this film if it weren't for you know video digital like tiny camcorders um and that he embraced that and then that he decided let's make a movie by shooting a fake audience he always he he did not sit down and back and say, okay, I'm going to, this works, this is successful, let's do another one like that. Let's do a sequel that's exactly the same kind of thing um, that he always pushed the art from all the way until his final film. And so I think depending on what you're looking for, you're like, hmm, I'm going to watch this movie. If I'm looking for something else, oh, I'm going to watch that movie. So I feel like he has given us such a rich pool of work couple of years ago
0: uh I I watched these K. R. R. very early early films like it, those specifically shorts uh films mostly educational films uh uh at Canoon. and that was I mean perhaps late for my you know life uh, I I saw those films but so they were very different and very uh, in an interesting way and to my understanding they look like as yeah they were they were like tended to be educational, but there are there are other shots that's very very much interesting that I remember one of examples very much about the order and disorder uh and to to me to me very much these films stands out but although it was very short, very like you know alien works, but very rich in terms of his. Approach to the subject matter and the film mm. to me, a sense of it's like s- experiments, uh, some to some sort. It's both like a film but also as a social experiment. Uh, it's like trying to figure out the situation, but still, there's no answers. Uh, although that's the Kanoon, right, wanted to specific, you know, uh, there is a for a specific purpose, and it seems that this, this interest in like. Yes, I'm. I'm filming. I'm interested as in cinema, but also thinking through this filmmaking, this process of filmmaking, about certain conditions. Um, it's it's very much striking me. It's perhaps very very early on in, um, uh, Kurosami's film. Um, I'm curious. Like, do do you think how how do you think about Kurosami's approach? Like to like thinking through some major social uh problems you know some conditions um and he's kind of the experimentation by film as thinking through some problems um just if uh if this question makes any sense but
1: um i do not want to speak for him nor guess around i think To an extent, we all write, produce what we know, like, because we cannot really make a film about something we don't know. Um, And so I, I think that sort of applies to every filmmaker. And yeah, so I... I agree with you that there's experimentation um and I'm not sure whether I misunderstood the beginning but when you were talking about his early like his films at Canoon, where he was kind of we can say honing his craft um, um before he had articulated the unfinished cinema um but it also reminded me later on when he gave workshops in Tehran to students. And he invited him to just go and make these films cause, like, as practice, because they need to be made. And in a way, potentially, they are coming full circle. He made these films for Kanoon. They had to be made. They also permitted him to practice his craft. And um, so by they had to be made, I didn't mean like, oh, his employer said you must make these films, but just he was now in this position. And he had to practice for himself as a filmmaker, figure out the art form, because he came out of painting and graphic design. So how do I tell a story in the film medium? And then looking at those early works, and then looking at films that would be produced by his students in his workshops later on, where he just encourage, no, you just got to go out and make a movie now. It's important, even it might not be the greatest piece, but to get the practice and to learn from the experience of making it to see what the final product is so that then you can build your skill set and find your voice at, as a filmmaker. How are you going to tell your stories? And so I, I feel like that's how I'm looking at this trajectory and like the the challenges he set his students, which, by the way, for any student listening to this podcast, there is a challenge by Kirostami at the very last uh, chapter of the book.
0: Yeah, perhaps, I know this is, this is your interpretation, but I'm curious, what do you think specifically, that's, that's just I'm, my curiosity about the zigzagging pathways.
1: Well, I'm very fond of the zigzag pathway. Um, I don't, I'm not gonna share what it means to me. Um, I think it means a lot of things to different people. I have taught Kurosami films for 15 years now. um, And it is fascinating the different reactions you receive um, from students, some completely fascinated by the different kind of cinema, others. Uh, completely bored out of their minds Uh, others absolutely indifferent and uh, but these kind of symbols they are being remembered and they're being remembered for different things um, likely also connected to what you thought about the film or how you responded to it originally I mean the zigzag path appeared right in the trilogy so it had a recurring role and so I yeah I think people are just you recognize it if you know the if you know the Koga trilogy and you see it then you immediately like oh my gosh it's a zigzag path um but what I associate with it on a personal level that that's just it yeah, that's just my interpretation and um, I thank your for having giving me that opportunity to engage with this film this way and other people will have their own interpretations of that path. I think it shows how powerful cinema is and that we remember it. And that you can say zigzag path as one thing to to approach the topic of Abbas Sami and the other person, if they know the films too, they know exactly where you're at. And so you are connected. And voila, our conversation starts. <laughs> uh, also,
0: this just, uh, I'm, just a, I'm curious, like... The trilogy of the Cooker uh, trilogy, that's not the term um, that Kyorisami came up with, right? This is like the by. We
1: needed to classify something, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Leave it to the Western critics. Yeah. No, let's package something that comes from elsewhere, from critics and scholars.
0: okay uh yeah that was a pleasure uh thank you uh Monica for coming uh to the podcast and taking your time It was a really pleasant um talk and yeah I thank really you so it.
1: much for having me Kaveh really enjoyed it and if I may I would also like to thank University of Mississippi Press for guiding me through the process of the interview series a second time and for all the um journals the editors the journalists who gave me permission to reprint their interviews um, to basically provide the world with a with a resource for Kierstami uh, for students now who just get to know him like are just being exposed now to his films and yeah to be able to have a resource there to get a sense of who this person was.
0: Thank you.